This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to the arts, and from history to business, and everything in between, including your stories. And send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org, because we want to hear them, and we think the country wants to hear them, too. You're the hour in Our American Stories. And this next story is about the rule of law, about something that all of us have experienced at some time or another, getting a traffic ticket. Adam McLeod is a law professor at Faulkner, and that's in Alabama. And as you'll hear, a stickler for justice. Here's Adam. My particular story begins when I received in the mail a couple of years ago a traffic camera ticket. I knew that I hadn't actually done anything wrong because I wasn't even driving the car. In fact, at the time that I was alleged to have broken these laws, I was in a faculty meeting at the law school where I teach. So I decided I was going to challenge this ticket on the principle of the thing. I was given a day to appear in court, and on that day I went over to our local municipal court and I sat down amongst all those who had been charged with various crimes and those who had received tickets like mine. And about an hour later, a bailiff came out and herded into a corner of the courtroom those of us who had appeared for this offense of owning a vehicle that had passed by a camera at too high a speed. So we all waited there, first for the clerk and then to be called individually to meet the clerk. Now, some people in our group decided to just pay the fine and be done with it. Others of us requested a hearing with a magistrate judge. Of course, this evoked an exasperated response from the clerk. And then we were required to wait around for the magistrate to show up to conduct the hearings. Then we each had to wait even more for our turn to appear before the magistrate. Now, the magistrate ruled against me in a rather summary hearing, so I decided that I was going to appeal the judgment up to the county-level court, known as the circuit court. Now, I went to the clerk's office and decided I was going to try to file my appeal, and the clerk's office made me wait in the lobby even more. And when they finally saw me, they insisted that I provide a criminal appeal bond. I pointed out that they had claimed this was not a crime that I had committed, but they were charging me with a civil violation. But no matter... No appeal bond, no appeal, they said. So I pulled out my checkbook. Nope, we don't accept checks. Come back with the amount of your ticket in cash. I left the courthouse, found an ATM, pulled out the amount of my ticket in cash and returned, and was left waiting in the lobby again. Finally, I was readmitted to the clerk's office. I saw a different employee who now told me that I had to pay twice the amount of my ticket in cash. So I left found another ATM, came back, more waiting, before I was finally allowed to file a criminal appeal bond for a crime I never committed. When I got home, I decided to call the city attorney to see if she really wanted to go through with this. And it turns out she does. Now, one doesn't always expect municipal officials to be paragons of lawfulness, but I was a little bit jarred to encounter a city attorney who really didn't know much about the law or her constitutional duties. A really basic distinction in the law, particularly when you're hauled into court, 
is between what are known as civil proceedings and criminal proceedings. Civil actions are designed to remedy injuries that people cause each other wrongly. So for example, if I were to trespass on my neighbor's lawn or commit a tort against him by punching him in the face, he could bring an action against me personally. Criminal actions are actions taken against people who have acted culpably against the public law in some way by breaking what are known as criminal laws, such as criminal prohibitions against stealing or perjury. I asked the city attorney whether this was a criminal action or a civil action. She replied, it's hard to explain it in those terms. So I said, well, okay, which do you intend to proceed under? The rules of criminal procedure or the rules of civil procedure? She said, we're going to go under the rules of criminal procedure because this is a criminal case. At this point, I pointed out that to start a criminal case, the state has to provide certain due process. It has to provide a charge and an indictment. It has to show that it has probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed. But she replied that none of those things would happen because this is a civil action. So I could expect to be served with a civil action complaint then, right? No, no, she said, as she had already explained, we would proceed under the criminal rules. I decided to take a different tack. I asked whether I was alleged to have violated the criminal law or to have committed some private wrong. She said I had violated the rules of the road. And she explained, you were caught on a camera speeding. I asked her if she had any evidence that I was caught on a camera speeding. Of course, she didn't. And she replied that she didn't need evidence. I was deemed liable because an automobile that I own was caught speeding. I pointed out that the ticket was issued against me, not against my car. But I'm liable, she said, because I loaned my vehicle to someone who speeds, whatever that means. So I asked her where in the laws it prohibits me from loaning my vehicle and how I'm supposed to know in advance that any particular person is going to use my car to speed. Agitated by my semantics, she advised me to raise any issues that I had with the trial court and then hung up on me. I knew this was going to be fun. And what a story this is. And by the way, we're all laughing here because it's happened to all of us. And this conflation of civil and criminal law and the way our cities and community police systems use traffic tickets as a revenue grab. And we know it. We can feel it. It's the end of the month. And there they are. It's not about our safety. It's about the money. And this city attorney... Well, she ran up against a pesky attorney, and something tells me there's a lot more to this story. It's Adam McLeod's story, but it's so many of our story as we relate to these, well, pesky civil-slash-criminal-slash-civil violations. And I loved that this poor city attorney really couldn't articulate the difference between criminal and civil offense. When we come back, Adam McLeod's story here on Our American Story.
And we continue with our American stories and Adam McLeod's story. And this is a legal yarn. I mean, it may not be John Grisham territory, but I'm telling you, if you're listening, I know you're really interested. How does he beat this ticket? How does he beat this city attorney? Well, let's go back to Adam for more. Before the trial, I decided to file what's known as a motion to dismiss. This is a motion which calls the attention of the court to the weakness of the prosecution's argument and ask the court to rule that there is no legal basis for the prosecution. Now, I tried to make this motion interesting because I wanted the trial judge to pay attention. In fact, I made the motion rather over the top. I alluded to political philosophers like Hobbes and Locke. I quoted the American Declaration of Independence. I suggested that the success of the American experiment in ordered liberty was at stake in my case. I resorted to superlatives did all the things that I tell my students never to do. We went to trial. The city produced one witness, the police officer, who had signed the affidavit, which was included in my ticket. Now, when he was being asked questions by the city attorney on what's known as direct examination, he explained that the traffic camera system is actually run by a corporation in another state called American Traffic Solutions that American Traffic Solutions chooses photographs from the various photographs they receive through their equipment and then recommends to the Montgomery Police Department, where I live, to initiate actions against particular vehicle owners and then gets paid for its work. Then it was my turn to ask the police officer questions. I stood up and asked a few targeted questions. This is known to lawyers as cross-examination. I established that the police officer was not present at the time of the alleged violation. He has no photographic evidence that I was driving the car, much less that anyone was driving the car. There were no witnesses. He does not know where Adam McLeod was at the time of the alleged violation. And then finally, I asked the concluding question, the one question I always teach my students never to ask, but I thought there's no harm in being dramatic in a case like this, since I was doing it for the principle of the thing. I asked the police officer, so you signed an affidavit under the pains and penalties of perjury, alleging probable cause to believe that Adam McLeod committed a violation of traffic laws without any evidence that that was so. Without hesitating, he answered, yes. This surprised both of us police officer had just admitted that he committed perjury. It also surprised the judge who looked up from his desk for the first time. The police officers in the back of the room also paid attention for their colleague had just testified that he had perjured himself in service to a city government and a mysterious faraway corporation whose officers probably earned many times his salary. At this point, the city rested its case and I renewed my motion to dismiss the case, and the judge immediately granted it. Victory, vindication, well, sort of. I tried to recover my doubled appeal bond, but I was told that the clerk was not authorized to give me my money. Naturally, the law authorizing these proceedings contains no procedure for return of the bond in the event that the accused wins and, in fact, imposes on the court no duty to return the appeal bond at the end of the proceedings. 
it seems that the lawmakers never would have imagined that anyone would actually beat the system. The clerk advised me to write a motion for the return of my appeal bond. Weeks later, when the court still had not ruled on my motion, I was told that I could file a motion asking for a ruling on my earlier motion. I bowed to absurdity, and I did so. Still nothing happened for almost two years, until finally I received in the mail a check for twice the amount of the ticket, equal to the appeal bond I had paid. The city kept all the accrued interest. Now, why does this matter? Why did I bother to go through all the trouble, jumping through all the hoops, and putting up with all of the obstacles which the city put in my way to challenging this traffic ticket? Well, traffic camera tickets tend to be popular in many places for a number of reasons, but I think they're profoundly unjust. They're popular in part because they appeal to a law and order impulse that we all share. We want to stop nefarious evildoers and scofflaws who jeopardize the health of motorists and the Republic generally by sliding through yellow lights or trying to beat a red and therefore endanger the lives and health of others. On the other hand, these traffic cameras don't distinguish between scofflaws and people who are actually trying to obey the law and who committed de minimis infraction by driving through empty streets at 30 miles an hour in compliance with the speed limit and who end up a couple inches over the white line when the light turns red. Also, traffic cameras don't always produce probable cause that a particular person has committed a crime, as in my case. There is no evidence, in fact. To get around this problem, several states have created this new category of law, which I encountered in my case, what they call a civil violation of a criminal law. And using this nifty device, a city can charge you of a crime without any witnesses, without any criminal due process protections like probable cause determinations or an indictment, and without any civil due process protections like any showing that anyone's been injured as a result of your actions. So in short, the government officials and their private contractors have at their disposal the powers of both criminal and civil proceedings and they're excused from the due process and constitutional requirements of both criminal and civil law. It's a neat trick. Equally troubling, I think, is that municipal governments are authorized to make an owner of a car answer a civil suit even though the city has not suffered any particular injury. Usually, no fellow citizen can haul you into court without first at least alleging, if not showing, that you wrongly caused some injury to that person. And a city cannot lawfully do to you what your fellow citizen cannot do to you. It has no power to haul you into court if it suffered no injury. And if a driver rolls through a yellow light at an empty intersection and fails to cross the line before the light turns red, when the streets are empty, no one's injured, least of all the city. In my case, the city attorney argued that the city has the power to haul me into court because someone exceeded the speed limit while driving my car. Now, it's certainly true that all citizens have a duty not to break criminal laws with culpable intent. But 
The American experiment in ordered liberty and the rule of law means that we owe that duty not to the city, but to each other. If we breach the duty, the city prosecutes crimes on behalf of the people and must give us criminal due process. The city has to produce evidence, for example. This is American constitutionalism 101. Now, I wrote about this encounter with the city government in an essay that ended up attracting national media attention. My essay also attracted the attention of state legislatures who repealed the traffic camera law in my state. The uh, Montgomery mayor remained defiant for some time before finally ending the program and announcing that the city will no longer use car-based traffic cameras, though it's going to continue to use stationary cameras mounted at intersections near traffic lights. So my story ends well. It's not ended as well for other Americans who don't have the time or the expertise to challenge programs such as this. And I think this is unfortunate. Traffic camera laws seem like minor, insignificant intrusions on liberty. And so many people fail to grasp that they're actually really, really significant constitutional infringements. They reflect a profoundly mistaken view of American constitutionalism. And that is so true. And thank you, Adam McLeod, for just sticking it out and sticking it out for all of us, because it's so true. If you can do this, what else can you do? I think that's the point. In contracting with a private company to, well, just get some money into the pockets of a local mayor, because that's what's going on here, and everybody knows it, and we're all resentful of this, actually, because those police should be used to stop rapists and murder and actual harms to we the people, not just sitting over a hill waiting for you to do 11 miles an hour in a 10-mile-an-hour speed limit zone and just hit you that day because they had a quota to meet. And by the way, I've talked to any number of cops who hate it. They hate being forced to do this and to basically find their own citizens to meet a budget quota. This is Lee Habib, Adam McLeod's story. And my goodness, anyone who's ever gotten a ticket from one of these electronic devices, our stories too, here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories, and we love to talk about music here on this show, and we love to tell stories of a song. And this next one, well, Jesse brings us The Keeper by Chris Cornell. It's a story of redemption that blends the secular and the divine. While this is a story of redemption, some of the subject matter might be inappropriate for young listeners. Let's take a listen. The Keeper was written by Chris Cornell for a film called Machine Gun Preacher, which is based on the true story of Sam Childers, a former outlaw biker who travels to East Africa to help the children of Sudan. I come from far away, my boots don't know this ground, but they know it's real. It doesn't 
take too long for this road to become a battlefield. And before I let one more fire go out, understand that I won't give one inch of ground from beneath yours and my feet. Whatever the price happens to be. But I am the keeper. Here's Chris Cornell on writing the song for the film, Machine Gun Preacher. So I read the script, loved it, um, was really intrigued by the story, the, the scope of the story, because it's about a, a Pennsylvania biker, meth head criminal um, who then finds sobriety, becomes born again, builds a church and then becomes the pastor of that church because he can't find anyone else to do it. And then ends up on a uh, just kind of a missionary trip, goes to the Sudan and decides uh, that he wants to go out into the, the real areas where some of this violence happens. And while he's there, um, uh, something bad does happen. Machine gun preacher Sam Childers grew up in the hills of Pennsylvania. His parents were decent, honest people, but at an early age, Sam had skills at getting into trouble. I had the best parents. I had middle-class parents, uh, born-again Christian parents, never seen my dad ever drink, uh, you know, drugs or beat my mom or anything like that. They were, they were very cool parents. But, you know, I believe I was like a lot of children. We see other people smoking you know, maybe smoking marijuana, maybe drinking alcohol, and we think it looks cool, and we think it's gonna make us look older. So at a very young age, 11 years old, I wanted to look cool. I wanted 13-year-old girls and 14-year-old girls to notice me. So I thought to do that, I had to smoke cigarettes. So I started smoking cigarettes, then I went to smoking marijuana. 12 years old, I wanted to look like I was 15 years old, you know. So I started uh, experimenting with other drugs and pills and stuff and alcohol. 13 years old, I'm doing more. 14 years old, snorting coke and everything. 15 years old, I didn't care if anyone noticed me at all. I had a drug addiction. I left home before I was 16. You know, so finally it got to the point my dad knew I had a bad problem and he told me one day, and you know, a lot of parents think he was wrong, but my dad done the right thing. He said, boy, you either leave the drugs out of this house or don't come back in. So I left home uh, right before my 16th birthday. And at that time, you know, I thought I was, you know, I didn't really care about how old I thought I was because I had a drug addiction. I'm putting a needle in my arm every day, shooting up heroin and, you know, just getting high constantly. And then I started selling drugs, not a little bit, but a lot, you know. It kept getting deeper and deeper. I went as far off as you could go into that world. And then I became what they called a shotgunner. It's like a hired gun for drug deal. Almost like the security guy to make sure that, you know, everything goes good. And finally, I was living in Orlando, Florida at the time, and uh, went out to a bar one night, got into a bad bar fight, and guns come out, and people got shot, and people got beat up bad, and I almost got killed. 
I almost got killed that night. And on the way home, I said, I'm done living this life. You know, I believe in rehabs. Okay, I believe rehabs help. Uh, I believe AA, all them programs help. But bottom line, if you got an addiction, it's right here is what's going to get you out of it. You got to make up your mind. I'm done. And that night on the way home, I made my mind up. I walked in the house when I got home. I told my wife we're moving. My wife was looking for a way out. She was just, she had that hope that that moment would come that I would walk in and say, we're out of here. We moved over a thousand miles away. My wife starts going to church. I knew what God was because I was raised in a Christian family. But I started getting angry with God. My wife's going to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, midweek, you know. It was two years later till I walked into a church and said, God, here I am. Now, keep in mind, I let everyone know this. I'm not a Bible thumper, okay? I love Jesus Christ because he's the one that done miracles in my life. And I'm what they call a freedom fighter. So I fight for the freedom that every man and every woman around the world can choose who they want to serve. You want to serve Allah, you want to serve Buddha, I fight for that freedom. You don't want to believe at all, I fight for that freedom. But me and my family, we choose to serve Jesus Christ. You know, there's many ways to get success in life, okay? Many different ways. I got all of my success only because of Jesus Christ. Sam began to live a clean life. Things began to change for the better. His wife, Lynn, gave birth to a healthy baby girl, and Sam started his own construction business. Little did they know that their greatest challenge was just around the corner. In 1998, Sam arrived in the village of Ye, South Sudan. The African nation was in the midst of the Second Sudanese War. And Sam, urged by his pastor in America, had joined a mission group to help repair huts damaged in the conflict. I went on a five-week mission trip, seen the body of a small child that stepped on a landmine, and I stood over that body and I said, God, I'll do whatever it takes to help these people. So I went back into Sudan, Africa, supported the people, helped the people, many different ways, pulling landmines out for about a year and a half. Then I started a mobile clinic. I run it for about a year and a half. And then I started the actual orphanage, which is called World Mission Shekinah Fellowship Orphanage in Children's Village in South Sudan. Which is where Sam Childers got his nickname. Machine Gun Preacher. When I started the orphanage, it was started at a time where we would slash grass and we'd do the building with an AK either sitting there or strapped over our back. A lot of the natives would come by and they'd say, this guy is a preacher. And others would say, well, he's got a machine gun. And they'd say, well, he's the machine gun preacher. Which is where Hollywood picked up on the story, made the movie, and inspired Chris Cornell to write the song, The Keeper. The, the song itself, to me was a, a perspective where I, I can't say I've had these experiences, I'm not him. Um, I'm not uh, a Sudanese child who's had its family kidnapped or, or murdered. I haven't been mistreated in that way. I don't live with that kind of fear. So um, other than sympathetically, how could I write the song? And the song came from the perspective of if Sam Childers, for example, were a songwriter, what would he write and what would he sing to these kids? Um, and that's where the idea for the keeper came from. The story of a song, the story of Sam Childers, Machine Gun Preacher, right here on Our American Stories.
Beauty and truth collide Where love meets genocide Where laughter meets fear Confusing all around As I try to feed these mouths That have never known singing And before I let one more tear hit the ground I would be the one standing between you and the sound of the rounds Echoing out, out of the dark The smoke and the spark aimed at the heart of the flame This is Our American Stories, and as you know, we tell stories of every kind here on the show, including yours. And sometimes they're fun, and sometimes they're joyful, sometimes they're sad, and sometimes they're just plain difficult. And homelessness is a subject that, well, most of us want to avoid. Uh, We worry about it ourselves. I think a lot of Americans are a couple of checks away from being homeless, and you just don't want to think about it. It's sort of like Alzheimer's. I read a poll recently where people did not want to be tested for Alzheimer's. Even though they knew there was a chance it could happen to them, they just didn't want to know. And by the way, we've brought you Alzheimer's stories too. Glenn Campbell's is just so remarkable. And it's a serious social crisis around the country that's ignored, and particularly in some of our bigger cities. But one person is doing something about it. He has a ministry of sorts, if he doesn't mind me calling it that. His name is Mark Horvath, and he experienced himself the highs and lows of the American dream from a successful career in TV to barely surviving, homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. But he found his voice again when he founded Invisible People, which chronicles the story of homeless people around this country. Mark hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their own experiences. Today, he's the online voice of his cause, and he's bringing their stories, the homeless stories, to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark is speaking with Michael and Danielle, who, along with their family of six children, live in a weekly-rate hotel room near St. Louis, a living situation just one step away from street homelessness. Michael works a full-time job, but hotel homelessness becomes a trap. Hotels cost more than an apartment, but you can move right in without a deposit and a hotel room is far better than the streets. Once in, people who are considered the working poor have an impossible time trying to save up enough money to afford adequate housing. Often these hotels are not in a good place for kids to grow up. Here's Mark. Michael and Danielle and family, we're here in Wentzville, and you guys are all living in a hotel room. Actually, there's a couple more of you even. So yep. who else do we have here? Hi. Hi. This is Kim. This is Kimera. Yeah. This is Sierra. This is Sierra, and this is Kai. Gotcha. And there's one hiding below. Yes. In the back there. So. <laughs> so um, you're about to. Uh, we come in. You're packing up because mm-hmm. you are out of money for the hotel. Yes, sir. With no place else to go. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh my gosh. 
Oh my gosh. Um, what's it like uh, living in a hotel? It's hard. It's stressful. Yeah, it's stressful and hard, but it's better than being on the street. Yeah. How did you end up in this situation? <clears throat> our, our landlord... Our landlord didn't pay the mortgage and they took the home. The sheriff we showed up and took the home that we were paying on. Really? Yes, sir. Oh my gosh. And then how long have you been doing this hotel cycle? Uh, Almost a year now? Yeah, we went oh, to our, we went to her mom's. Her mom had bed else, so we went yeah, there for a little bit, and then um, she couldn't afford to pay pay her bills, and I was giving what I could, right. and it wasn't enough to support two families at one time. Right. You're working, yes, sir. It's just not enough to get out of here. Pretty, you know, pretty much so. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Um, wow! And now the kids are in school. Yes, yes sir. And the oldest three are in school. That's got to be hard. Oh, yeah. Got to be hard on them and you. It's yeah. harder on them, I think, than it is on us. Yeah. Come on. So, oh, my gosh. Uh, and, and this young one, when I walked in, said he was five. Yes. He's yeah. happy. Just turned five. Oh, yeah. Just turned five on Tuesday. So, like, even here, I mean, you have six kids. Yes. When laundry comes around, there's no laundry facility in this place. There's a partial laundry facility. It's just not set up to do a full load on okay. the money you pay the first go around, if that makes sense. So how about uh, meals? Yeah, a lot of microwaves. Yeah, a lot of What you see on the table is what we have got for a, our meals right there. Uh, what is that, like a skillet thing I can mm -hmm. cook yeah. in? Yeah. Well, you guys are smiling. looks like you're making the best of it. Not much can do. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Not easy to smile. Mm -mm. It's okay. Not easy to smile. But you stop. <laughs> but for especially the younger ones, it's you don't really have a choice because they don't understand and it's not their fault. Right. Thank you for the milk. <laughs> She's sharing, Daddy. Well, it's not your fault either. <sighs> yeah, you still feel like you oh, failed yeah. somewhere. Right. Yeah, you. Uh, it's kind of hard when you do everything right, you know, and you're doing an American Dream, and you're you're paying on something, you're working every day, and the kids got nice clothes, and they're going to school, and their friends stay the night, and then you get somebody that that takes advantage of you and, and takes your money, and then lets you continue to think that you have a home, and next thing you know, you got St. Charles County with four officers knocking on it, saying you got to get off your trespassing. Wow. They gave us two hours to empty that home, so half of our this really what you see. Except for one small storage shed is all we have left of home. Yeah. Everything else, um, we couldn't move it in two hours. It was it. I, I was once evicted and given a half an hour, so I know it happens. I can't oh, yeah. imagine having kids and a whole family and having to move. It was just me. Man, my heart goes out to you. What would you want people to know about homelessness living in a hotel? Because this is, this is a face of homelessness that they don't see. Um, put a smile on for your kids and, and, and make the best that you can, you know, and, and, and pretty much like, like us, if you're going to cry, try to, except for her right now, but if you're going to try to try to go yeah. into the bathroom and cry so the kids don't see it, because, you know, dads ain't supposed to cry, and, yeah. and that's mom's job, I guess, to cry. Yeah, it's okay right. to cry. 
But you don't know what anyone's going through or how they get where they're at. Oh, yeah. yeah. People look so at you don't and... don't make the assumption that yeah, you know. Don't assume that, that, that because you don't have a home, you know, it, what the economy is nowadays. A lot of people are losing their homes and, and they're making $30 an hour, but they can't they can't right. make the ends meet with children. and, and <laughs> So they end up in these hotels, which, as we started, it's still better than the streets. Yeah, that's that's the that's the main thing. That's why, you know, it, it, you don't want to be here, but but you, you got a roof over your head. and, and, and Keeps like, everyone together. Yeah, my daddy always told me before he died, home's what you make it. Yeah. yeah. You know? And, and I go to work and I come in here, I take my shower and I play with the kids and then God knows I try to go to bed in time to get up at, at, at 3.30 in the morning, but, you know, I got kids sleeping with me, and, and, and she has the monsters with her, and and this monster kicks around. Yeah. Yep, you sleep yep. with your daddy. Well, if you had three wishes, what would they be? Um, Three wishes for us, or three wishes in general? Three wishes any way you want to slice them. Three wishes for me would be to to to, to pretty much um Stabi yeah stabi stability for the children, but to to also end end homelessness for for like my father. He came home from Vietnam, and my my mom and him were on the street because everybody spit on him when he got back from the war. So he's out on the streets. Oh, uh, my father passed. He so passed seven years ago. But when he first came back from from Vietnam, he did three tours, and they they lost their home while he wow. was gone. And um, pretty much to to. Pretty much to have all the money that you can to, uh, when you see people on the side of the road, to give them money and, 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 and because of... More understanding. Yeah. yeah. You, don't, you don't realize how fast... This happens. It oh, happens yeah. Blink of an eye. And how fast it could quickly be you. Anyway. Right. So, Mama, three wishes? Um, other than the stability for my kids... Um, That's my, that's my biggest one, is the stability for my kids. Um, permanent, what we had. Yeah, what we had, what we, what we worked for. Um, other than that, a peaceful bath would be about the only thing I could say. Oh, wow, That's yeah. definitely something you miss. You, you don't have that, I mean, you can run to the bathroom, but that doesn't last very long. Right. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh, one more. Because they find you. Yeah. <laughs> um... Other than that, like I said, basically understanding. Because the kids are the ones, especially the older ones, like the one that's hiding behind me. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's hard on them, and they take a lot of flack for it. Right. I will go. Well, yeah, you, okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Always got to put his two cents in. Yeah. Well, thank you guys very much for talking to me. You're welcome. No, no problem. I think I did more crying than talking, but... No, you guys are awesome. <laughs> oh, no, no, Daddy, don't drink that. <laughs> and you are listening to Michael and Danielle, and that's Mark Horavath, and, of course, it's Invisible People. And Invisible People is a 501c3. It's a nonprofit dedicated to educating the public about homelessness through storytelling, news, and advocacy. No better way to do it than the way Mark's doing it. Was just, it's just give homeless people a voice. And no questions and no judgment, just a voice. And for more on Invisible People, go to YouTube or go to their website at invisiblepeople.tv. And my goodness, that wish from the mom, Danielle. Stability, a peaceful bath, a peaceful bath, and understanding. Three pretty simple wishes any mom should be able to have. 
Great storytelling. Thanks to Mark Horvath for his passion bringing these voices to the American consciousness. And thanks to Michael and Danielle, their story. So many homeless people's story. And again, what Michael said was so true. It could happen to anybody, and it happens real fast. And so many Americans are a few paychecks away from not being able to make that mortgage payment. Michael and Danielle's story, Mike Horvath's story, here on Our American Story. And this is Our American Stories. And we chat with authors of all sorts and, well, all kinds of books here, too. And today, we're joined by Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal's sports section and the author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. And Sam, look, there's no better way to start a bar fight than to pick the greatest teams in the world. I mean, that's really hard. And also, you could have a bar fight Deciding what's a sport, what's a team. Talk about both of those things. And was it hard or was it easy? Because something's telling me it's pretty hard. I thought it would be easy. You know, I had those arguments at the bar and, you know, they always ended in just someone storming out because it was impossible to answer. And what I realized was that there's really no set criteria for how we define greatness. And no one had really done a rigorous study or tried to actually nail it down. So that was one of the toughest things I... I had to do at the beginning was define greatness. And in the end, what I decided was that we have to be a little more specific about what a team is. A team has to have a certain number of people. It can't be two people. That's more of a partnership. I finally decided that five, five people was really the point at which group contributions and group chemistry was more important than individual performance. So basketball was really the smallest sport that I studied. I had another set of questions, which was, how do you define greatness? And, you know, for me, one of the problems is when people talk about great teams, there's no real set period of time that we apply to it. A lot of people talk about teams that were great in one season or had an incredible undefeated season. But what I really wanted to study, what I realized was important, is teams that had sustained their dominance for a long time. Because I think any team can get lucky. They can win a championship in one season or two seasons. But really to rule out luck completely and to talk about culture and chemistry, then you really had to set the bar at four years. And let's talk about some competing theories that are out there because the name of your book is the captain class. Some people think it's the coaches. Some people think it's the management. Some people think it's that superstar player or the team of players. What led you to this categorization and your choice to study the captains? I was completely shocked. I, I had all of the same assumptions that I think everyone does. When I finally identified these teams, and that took years and years of work. I mean, I, I went through 25,000 teams, the entire history of sports since the 1880s, all over the world, and I got down to 17 of them. And, you know, the first thing I looked at was talent, right? I thought talent would be the thing. And, you know, but I quickly realized that some of these teams, you know, they all were talented, but some of them had talent that was clearly average or even mediocre in some cases. So it wasn't that. The second thing I thought was coaching, you know, it's got to be coaching, but to my great surprise, 
there wasn't a pattern there. I'm not saying coaching isn't important, but some of these teams had more than one coach. You know, they changed coaches or, you know, some of them didn't even have coaches or had coaches who really didn't take an active role. And in fact, only one of them had a coach who was considered a great coach when their run of dominance began. So that wasn't the magic bullet I was looking for. I also looked at things like tactics. You know, I thought maybe they just had incredible, brilliant strategies that stood out above the rest. But again, you know, only a handful of them could say that. So that wasn't a pattern either. It didn't have anything to do with organization or even management at the higher levels. The only thing that they all had in common, and it was slap your forehead obvious. I mean, it was just so plain as day when I looked at it was that these runs of greatness, these long streaks of dominance, they always corresponded almost precisely to the arrival and departure of one player. And that player in every single case was the leader of the team or the captain. And let's take a deep dive into your captain theory with the first captain I want to talk about and this great American sports franchise called the Boston Celtics. Bill Russell, who was he? Bill Russell is, in my mind, the greatest team leader in sports history. And what that team accomplished, I've never seen anything the likes of it. I mean, they won 11 NBA championships in 13 seasons. And people forget that. We talk about the the Bulls, Michael Jordan, and the, the Warriors today, and LeBron James. You know, but what we don't see is that incredible consistency. The whole notion of a team that has won 10 NBA titles and yet is still hungry to win an 11th is kind of incredible. And they pulled it off year after year. And now, again, that streak began and ended with Bill Russell. It started his rookie season when they won their first championship. And the Celtics had never won a title before, ever. And the year he retired was the last championship of the streak. And the, the following season, they, they didn't even make it to 500 and didn't make the playoffs. It took many more years for them to return to glory. So this was completely bracketed by Bill Russell. And I want to make the point very clearly that I'm not saying that all you need is a great captain to have a great team. I mean, you need a lot of things. A lot of things have to work. But to me, the captain is really like the verb in a sentence. You know, the adjectives, the nouns. Yeah, the punctuation, all these other things might be more interesting, more memorable, but without the verb, it's not a sense. It doesn't work together. And that's kind of the role these captains played in bringing these elements together. And Russell was such a great example because Russell was absolutely on the court, completely strange. He was a big man who did not score, which was very unusual for the day. And you know, back then defenders weren't supposed to leave their feet, you know, but he would fly through the air and block shots and he played this ferocious brand of defense. It was completely relentless. You know, no one had ever seen anything like that, and his numbers were, were not startling, so people didn't understand it. And you know, off the court, too, he was strange. I mean, he didn't care about endorsements. He didn't sign autographs. He was very prickly with the press and, and didn't really seem to care much about the fans or being a role model or anything that we associate with, with leadership. You know, in fact, he, he turned down the Hall of Fame you know, when he was inducted. He said he just didn't want any part of it. People thought he was an oddball, but really what they didn't understand was that all he cared about was the collective accomplishments of the team. And all his effort, everything went inside that team. And inside the team, his teammates loved him, you know, and everything about him. They understood him completely and they would do anything for him. And on the court, you know, he understood that, you know, what the team didn't need was someone pouring in 
uh, baskets and getting in the highlight reel. They needed someone who would do all the unglamorous grunt work, every dirty job that needed to be done in order to help the team win. And that was his role. So he's just the epitome of great leadership. And he was un- misunderstood in his time. And, you know, I think only today we're really starting to understand the full dimensions of what he brought to that team. And anyone who was around during that day knows who Bill Russell was. By the way, he played at the University of San Francisco and took them straight to a college championship as well. When we come back, more with Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. This is Our American Story. Our American Stories, and we're back with Sam Walker, the author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. We were just talking about Bill Russell of the Boston Celtics, and Sam, you began the book with the words of this legendary captain, quote, my ego demands for myself the success of my team. Yeah, no, I love that. And it's such a great encapsulation of what you need to be if you want to be a great leader and, uh, you know, all the different ways that you need to think about your role and how much you need to, how hard you need to work and how much of yourself you need to just forget about. You you really need to kind of give yourself over completely to to the goals of the the group. And that's something that we're not trained to do. Business schools aren't teaching people to do that. Selflessness and self-sacrifice aren't generally words people use for most CEOs in America. We can, we can say that safely, Sam. Talk about the Coleman play, because one of the things about Bill Russell, and we're going to learn this more about some of these other captains, is this word called desire. And my goodness, anybody who played around Bill Russell understood what that word meant. So this is one of my favorite stories because I think it it shows one of the characteristics that we all kind of know is important, but that we don't really understand why it's important. And that is relentlessness. And Bill Russell was relentless. I mean, to an extreme, he would get sick before every game that he played even meaningless games. He would throw up in the locker room. And in fact, if he didn't throw up, his teammates would say, Russ, you go throw up. Like, what's wrong with you? Uh, because he, he cared so much. But the Coleman play was a perfect example of why this matters. Now, this happened in, the, in his rookie season, and they made it to the NBA Finals in a Game 7 against the St. Louis Hawks. And you know, this was one of the first Game 7s, and it was just a huge event. It was incredible pressure, and Russell was a rookie. Now, late in the game, uh, Boston had a one-point lead. It was about a minute left. And Boston got a rebound, and Russell charged down the court, and he tried to dunk the ball missed up his timing, he missed. And St. Louis got the rebound. And now St. Louis, a forward named Jack Coleman, had been sort of hanging back behind the play. And they quickly inbounded the ball to him at at midcourt. Now he's at midcourt with the ball and a running start. Now Russell, who had missed that dunk, where was he? He was underneath his own basket, off the court, on the other side. He was about 96 feet from the basket, and Coleman was probably about 45 feet with a running start. 
But when Coleman came to the rim and to make a layup, now this is late in the game. They would have taken a lead. It might have been the end. This blur appeared behind him and swatted the ball away, and it was Russell. And he had somehow covered twice the distance that Coleman had in the same amount of time. I mean, nobody on uh, in that arena would have thought he had a chance, and he certainly must not have even known himself. But just that raw desire that he demonstrated over and over again in competition. The thing about it is that was consistent for him. And what we don't understand is that studies have shown that relentlessness is highly contagious. You know, if a group of people you know, that's doing something together thinks that one person in that group is giving a hundred percent effort, a real maximum effort, all of them will raise their own performance. If you have someone in your midst like that, who is relentless and committed to playing at all times at 100%, they're going to be serious marginal gains that you will you will see in your teamwork. And that's just not something we can quantify. So it's not something that we teach, but I think it's about time we started. We've all been around people who have that kind of drive and focus and what it does to our game. We raise our game. We raise the bar. And when those people aren't present, we don't even know where the bar is. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, it's funny because there are some emotions that are contagious inside a group. And Relentlessness is contagious always in a good way. Toughness is always contagious in a good way. If you show toughness and perseverance, others will too. And another one is emotional control, which is something all these leaders had. They had the ability to overcome really difficult personal circumstances and not just compete well, but compete at a higher level than ever. And Tom Brady of the Patriots is a great example of this. You know, a couple of seasons ago after this whole deflate gate situation, you know, he served a suspension, but he came back and played one of his greatest seasons. But even after they won the Super Bowl and this incredible comeback against the Atlanta Falcons, we find out that his mother had been undergoing chemotherapy, you know, and had been diagnosed with cancer that season. So he was going through that and he never said a word about it. No one knew about it you know, because he had the control to put that away and to play as hard as he could when he was playing and deal with it separately. And no doubt. And we're going to get to Brady in a little bit because it's such a fascinating chapter in your book. But let's talk about one more basketball player because I don't think he gets the credit he deserves. Tim Duncan of the San Antonio Spurs. Talk about Timmy Duncan. Who is he? He is a very unusual guy. He uh, was a great swimmer. I mean, really had uh, incredible talent, could have maybe even been an Olympic uh, swimmer. But you know, the hurricane came in and destroyed the local pool. And at about the same time, his mother passed away. And, you know, he had a, these hard knocks. And, you know, he started picking up basketball and was very lightly recruited. In fact, Wake Forest was one of the only schools that really took him seriously. And he was a very skinny kid and just hadn't grown into his body. But, you know, he, he got there and really matured and became a really hot NBA prospect. But, you know, I don't think anyone really thought that, that he was going to become the, the star that he was or that he would develop his skills the way he did. But the thing that's fascinating about Tim, there's two things I think there's so much about him that is instructive for leaders. But I think the, the most important thing really is the way he played. Now, he had the talent to dominate the NBA in terms of scoring, you know, or any of the famous, gaudiest statistics. But if you look at his totals, it's really amazing. So, I mean, some years he was very prolific scorer. Some years it was not. His blocks and rebounds and other things were, were off the charts. He would change his position on the court and play different positions depending on the makeup of the team. It just showed that he had the same quality that Russell had, which is that he 
he didn't care what his numbers were or what you thought of him or whether he got on the cover of a magazine. He only cared about the team winning and he would do whatever grunt work needed to be done and he would change his role to fit. But the thing about Tim Duncan that really everyone should study is the way he communicates. I was completely surprised when I looked at these captains because the first thing I thought the first way that you motivate a team is is with a speech. You give a big speech, right? You motivate them with words. And none of these captains gave speeches. I mean, they did not like to do it. Some of them purposely avoided it. And I did not understand this. I didn't understand how they communicated effectively with their team. I thought I went right to Duncan. Because if you've ever watched Tim Duncan give an interview, you know that he is not a charismatic guy. He sounds like he's getting a colonoscopy when he's answering questions. He just has no emotion. He's he's monosyllabic, right? He doesn't come across as a charismatic person. So how does he communicate? Well, he talks a lot, but it's a different sort of communication. He's always working the room, talking individually to one person, one-on-one, with incredible intensity. He stares, uses his eye contact and gestures and touch to communicate very intensely with people. And he listens as much as he talks. He doesn't lecture, he listens. And he has these interactions all the time and he has them in the moment, especially when someone has done something wrong or needs uh, encouragement. That's when he springs into action. And what I realized that the Spurs talk more than any team I've ever seen. I mean, they're always talking on the floor, on the bench, constant communication. And this creates an atmosphere where everyone feels like they can contribute, they feel heard. And they also feel like they have to account for themselves. And all the problems that team had were addressed in the moment. Nothing ever festered. This talkative style that they had allowed them to address problems in the moment to move past them. And that's why they were so good for so long. That's why they made the playoffs in 19 consecutive seasons with an incredible revolving cast of players and won five championships and had the greatest long-term winning percentage in NBA history. It was because that that whole climate that Duncan created, you know, allowed them to slot new people in and got them uh, talking and solving problems. So even though they didn't always have the best talent or certainly not the most money, they were the most dominant team of, of their era in the NBA. And we're talking to Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. And what a terrific series of stats for Tim Duncan, wherever you might put him in the pantheon of greats. 19 consecutive playoffs, five championships, and the best winning percentage in National Basketball Association history. And by the way, if you like what we do here on Our American Story, speaking of, well, at least trying to raise the bar and lead the dialogue, maybe be the captain of the class in storytelling, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. Five best stories each week, you'll get them. Also, please send the link to a friend. If you like what you're hearing, Please help us succeed in the market and in the marketplace of ideas and stories. We're working hard to get this out to the American people. There's a lot of screaming. There's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of hate. This show is always about, well, interesting, compelling, and good things. When we come back, Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class, here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. And for anybody out there who's listening, leading anything, and anyone who's a sports fan, but even if you're not, what a great discussion. We were just talking about Tim Duncan, probably the highest paid person to ever have written an academic psychology paper. Because in college, Sam, he co-authored one titled Blowhard Snobs and Narcissists, Interpersonal Reactions to Excessive Egotism. In the opening paragraph is the line, quote, simply put, we don't like egotistical people. So even as an undergrad, Tim Duncan got it. It just shows you the level of intelligence and emotional intelligence that these great leaders had. I mean, I don't know. I think I think that my sense with Duncan, I've never spoken to him about this. I know he's very proud of the paper, but I think that really was who he was and that that research that he did really explained to him that who he was as a leader, he didn't look like a leader that you would you would pick out of a crowd. I mean, his teammates always said if he walked into practice, he would never imagine that he was the leader of the team because he didn't, he wasn't the loudest voice in the room. He wasn't a huge presence of a charismatic person who barked out orders. He didn't do any of the things leaders are supposed to do. What I found in my book and what I hope is inspiring in it to people is that, you know, you may not think that you have leadership characteristics. You may think that there are things that you just aren't good at, but Really, the the truth is that all of the things that these leaders did were really about behavior and the choices that they made in the team context every day. And behavior can be modeled and leadership can be be, uh, improved. Choices can be better. And when you start to understand what leadership really involves and you start to separate out the myths, then um, you can see why someone like Tim Duncan may not be the guy on posters in every kid's bedroom, but he is by far the winningest and most effective leader of his generation. You know, his coach once said that Duncan didn't have an ounce of MTV in him. He even (laughs) agreed to be paid less than market value. Why did he do that? What was he thinking? I mean, his agent must have went, Timmy, what are you talking about? You want the maximum so I can get the maximum commission. What are you doing? You know, Tom Brady did the same thing with the Patriots, and he would restructure his contract every year so that they could have more salary cap room to sign other players. I mean, it's that's what you do. He's made more money, I'm sure, than he ever imagined he would make in his life, and, and as most of these players have. And it's not an affectation. I mean, he cared about the team and the team's result. That's where all his satisfaction came from, and it came much more than his satisfaction from having more money in the bank or having, you know, yet another supercar in his garage. I mean, that stuff didn't matter. And he's an incredible person. And, you know, I have so much respect for him. And I, I do think that there's a lot of appreciation for him, but he's often left out of the conversation when people talk about the greatest players of all time. And I just don't understand it. I don't understand this hall of fame mentality where, you know, we separate out an individual from his teammates and say, this person deserves special praise. I don't understand how any – I think they knew that, that their – whatever their accomplishments were, were all dependent on other people, that you can't really divide a team into its important parts and its less important parts. It's really all one unit. Indeed. I want to quote from the book because it's such a good quote, and it's something we all know and experience in any workplace. Quote, one of the great paradoxes of management – is that the people who pursue leadership positions most ardently are often the wrong people for the job. You then cited a study of superstar CEOs and how, as they lift themselves up, they often lower others in the process. 
Tim Duncan and so many members of your captain class, they did the exact opposite. Talk about that. Well, my favorite example of this is a woman named Carla Overbeck. And I doubt that you immediately remember that name. She was the captain of that great 1999 U.S. women's soccer team that won the World Cup and you know, really dominated that sport for about five, six years. Just one of the best soccer teams of all time. And you remember Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and Brandy Chastain, all the big stars of that team. But there's a reason you don't know Carla Overbeck, and it's because she did not care. She did not want you to know who she was. She had no interest in the spotlight whatsoever, any personal accolades. And she was not the best player on the team. She was a central defender, and you know, she never did anything flashy. She never scored. She you know, would, would pass the ball off the minute she got it to one of her teammates, and she – you know, she just played with this relentless pace. But what was amazing about her is that I think she understood what leadership is really about. And it's really about service. She was incredible with this because she did things I'd never seen before. When this team would go on a long road trip to Japan or Norway, they would get to their hotel and they'd be exhausted and they'd get a knock on the door and they'd open it up. And it was Carla Overbeck who was carrying their bags from the bus to their rooms for them. Now, this is the captain of the team doing this. I asked one of her former coaches about this. I said, how is this leadership? How does this help her be a leader? And he said, you know, she knew exactly what she was doing because Carla Overbeck would do these things on behalf of her teammates. And they understood that to her, all she cared about was the collective of the team. She did not care about herself. She would do anything for them. And this gave her a certain amount of currency, like a, a bank account that she could spend when she needed to. And she would spend it on the field. Because the minute that someone messed up or was not focused, she would be all over them or encouraging them when they did something great. And it meant something. Everyone understood who she was and what she was all about. And it had great power when she did it in competition. It made the team better. Let's talk about football now and and two teams in particular. First, the 1970s Pittsburgh Steelers teams. Who is Jack Lambert and why did you include him in this book? Most folks think of Terry Bradshaw. When they think of that powerhouse Steeler team, why was Jack Lambert the guy you focused on? But really the heart and soul of that team was his defense. I mean, it was an extraordinary, historically great defense. And that was really the uh, the unit that drove that team forward. And just look at the moment that Jack Lambert showed up. I mean, the Steelers had never won a Super Bowl before he got there. And, uh, you know, never. And, and now they're, you know, they've won more, I think, than any other NFL team. And, you know, they are uh, they are really a creation of Lambert's tenacious style and his aggressive play and his relentlessness. Jack Lambert was a player who had an understanding of something that all these, these elite captains knew to some extent, but I think he was probably the best example of it. They understood the power of nonverbal communication, of just gestures. They understood that there were moments where they needed to do something in full view of their teammates that would show their level of commitment and passion because that would transfer it to them and allow them to play harder. And Jack Lambert was famous, of course, for, uh, you know, he lost a couple teeth in high school playing pickup basketball and he uh, had a prosthetic denture that he wore in public, but he would take it off on the field so that he had a toothless, you know, mouth and he, and he would scare people. So that was part of it. But my favorite Jack Lambert story that I think shows you uh, the genius of his leadership was that they were playing a, a game, I believe, in 1976, and they had won the Super Bowl, but they started one and four. 
people had written them off, like it's over for the Steelers, and they had to win this game. They had to beat the Bengals, and he wound up playing a, probably the finest game of his career in terms of the number of tackles. He recovered fumbles. He basically accounted for most of his team's points single-handedly. So it was an incredible game. But now in the middle of this game, he had uh, came into the game. He had a cut on his hand, and he bandaged it up, and you know he went out there. And, of course, the bandages failed, and the blood starts spurting out. It was all over his uniform and his pants. I mean, it was a mess. I tracked down one of the trainers and I asked him, why didn't you know you just rewrap that bandage when he came off the field or change his uniform at halftime or something? And he said, you don't understand. He's like, Jack Lambert loved having blood on his uniform. I mean, he understood how powerful that message was and how, uh, how much harder it made his teammates play and how much it intimidated his opponents. And uh, he, he did that on purpose. And Jack Lambert did all kinds of things that might seem crazy or unhinged. But when you listen to him talk about it, I mean, he always says, look, these were calculated acts. These were things that I did, uh, you know, on purpose because I understood the power that they would have and I understood the effect they would have on the team. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that that team was so good and so consistently great uh, and won four Super Bowls in six years, which no team has ever done. And what great storytelling. And when we come back, the final segment with Sam Walker, more stories to come author of The Captain Class. This is Our American Stories. back with our final segment of our conversation with Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal sports section and author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. It's a terrific read. Go to Amazon.com and order it. You won't be disappointed. I had to read something to you, Sam, from quarterback John Elway. Of course, he played at Denver. And this was him talking about Jack Lambert. And by the way, he was a rookie. And here's what he wrote. Lambert had no teeth. He was slobbering all over himself, and I'm thinking, you can have your money back. Just get me out of here. Let me go be an accountant. I can't tell you how badly I wanted it out of there. And so you were talking about all of this nonverbal communication. My goodness, it didn't just fire up his team. It scared the heck out of the opponents. Talk about courage and how captains develop it. You know, a lot of it comes from emotional control. And, you know, we don't think of Jack Lambert as being someone who was uh, emotionally controlled. But like all of these great athletes, you know, he was not someone who got in trouble off the field. I mean, he was not someone who got in a lot of brawls. And none of these captains, they were usually very quiet. Off the field, Jack Lambert was really kind of an introverted, private person. I mean, he was a big reader. And, you know, on road trips, he would he would often just sit in his room reading a book. I mean, he wasn't an outsized character. That aggression that he had on the field didn't translate to the rest of his life. And that was something I saw with all of these athletes. And, you know, I think it's a way of redefining courage because, you know, he poured everything into football and, and all of his aggression, all of his passion, everything. You know, he would, he would put it all out on the field. And, you know, when he wasn't there, he had this incredible ability to, to shut it off and to kind of return to normal and, and to, to, to be a quieter, 
person. And, you know, that's a form of courage that we don't really understand. It's an ability to control your emotions. You know, being able to do that, you know, it's not courage in the sense of, of you know, running up the hill in a, in, a, in a rain of bullets in some big military battle, but it's a different sort of courage that I think is very contagious because I think people see you dealing with your emotions that way, being able to control them, being able to target them toward objectives. And I think uh, it gives everyone a better understanding of, of how to operate in a team environment and, and what courage really is. Let's talk about Tom Brady at the University of Michigan, where he played as a collegian. No one could have imagined what would have been in store for him as an NFL player. He was a sixth-round draft pick and had trouble keeping his starting job in college. No, he lost it. I mean, he lost it. To Drew Henson, who was, you know, uh, supposed to be the next great, you know, quarterback, the second coming of, you know, Joe Montana. Yeah, no, he went through a lot. And, you know, um, the fact that he even got on the field was a fluke because he only got to play because of a serious injury to Drew Bledsoe. And it really shows you, you know, that, that it's very easy sometimes to not look inside someone. I mean, I think he had great talent, physical talent, and, you know, we'd seen many flashes of that at Michigan, but... What was really lurking inside him was incredible elite leadership ability and, you know, also great tactical mind and all those things that, you know, I think scouts too often dismiss. Brady was tough because, you know, Brady's accomplishments, I know everyone loves to talk about Brady and the greatness of the Patriots, but, you know, until I believe this season when they made another Super Bowl and and won eight, eight straight AFC championship games, you know, their record was very similar to the 49ers in that long stretch where they were very dominant. So same number of Super Bowls, roughly the same winning percentage. So I had a very hard time saying that either one of those teams was unique. So initially, for the hardcover, I didn't put the Patriots in. But later on, I, after they made that Super Bowl, I decided to put them in because I thought their record had clearly outpaced the 49ers. But the thing about Brady that stands out to me the most beyond his leadership qualities is his relationship with his coach. And that is something that is fascinating to me. And I said that coaches weren't the, the important factor, the crucial factor, and I don't think they are. But what's really important in these great teams with coaches is that they have a partnership with their captain. And I saw this over and over again. It wasn't a boss-employee kind of relationship. Bill Belichick and Tom Brady had this relationship that was unusual. It was like the relationship Tim Duncan had with Greg Popovich, too. It was very affectionate and there's a lot of of love between them but they knew how to fight and they would fight all the time they would come into conflict about tactics it was never personal it was always about how the team was playing you know and belichick would would go to team meetings and rip brady in front of everyone for mistakes that he made and brady would take it and it would tell everyone that no one's above the team but you know, if Tom Brady didn't like the Super Bowl playbook that he was given, he would tell him to rip it up and start over. So that partnership, I think, was really underrated. And if you remember that first season Tom Brady came, he was a six-round draft pick no one thought was uh, anything. And Bill Belichick was a guy who got fired at Cleveland that no one thought had the chops to be a head coach. And together, they became two of the legends in football. But I don't think you can separate them. I don't think it was something they could have achieved individually. I think that partnership and their ability to work together was so important. And I think the message for coaches and people, managers and people who are trying to assemble teams with this kind of leadership model is that you've got to pick someone to lead that team that you can really partner with and that you respect and that 
you can uh, really treat as a peer. I think that's true. And there was a balance of power you wrote about and a mutual respect and that fighting wasn't a bad thing. And you equate the great captains and coaches to married couples. I was lucky to see a great marriage. My mom and dad would fight like cats and dogs. And it was over right after the fight. And then I'd see them loving each other. And then when they disagreed, they'd go at it. And it was respect for each other. And they taught me how to fight, which is a wonderful thing. People who can disagree and then carry on, you're giving them the greatest gift in the world. It's true. It's so underrated. And it's funny because especially in sports, there's this weird sense that conflict is bad. You know, there, there's, there are certain players, and the, and the thing about these captains was they were not easy to manage. I mean, they would push back on anything they didn't think was in the best interest of the team, whether it was something big or small. They would push back against the coaches, but they would push back against their teammates as well. They were willing to stand apart. And you talk about courage, and, you know, that's an underrated form of courage. It's the ability to just dissent from the group. And science has actually shown that, that there is a, an element of physical discomfort that comes with standing apart. So it's something that's not easy to do. And yet it's so crucial. You know, all the, the studies that have been done of team performance show that teams that really work together in, in close ways, as they do in sports, a certain level of conflict is essential. But there's a different kind of conflict. There's two kinds, really. There's a, a kind of conflict they call task conflict, which is really about an argument about process, about how the team is doing something or how they should do something. And there's another form of conflict, which is personal conflict. This is when the source of the conflict is really just, I don't like you. And there's a real difference. Now, all these captains, whenever they introduce conflict in their teams, they made a huge point to make clear that it wasn't personal. They never singled out individuals. They never blamed any one person. It was always about the collective, and it was always about the task and the process. And it's a huge difference. It's so easy to mistake those two things and look at someone who is creating conflict uh, as a bad thing when you're not really necessarily looking at why they're doing it or how they're doing it. And that was one of the real secrets uh, I feel like I uncovered, something I had no idea about until I really took a hard look at it. Sam, you wrote something fascinating about all of these captains, that they were more like jazz musicians than conductors, and that they freely improvised on and off the court to get the job done. It was one of the things that I had never considered when I think about teams, but there was a famous researcher named Richard Hackman, who was a Harvard psychologist who passed away a few years ago. He spent all of his career embedded with performance teams, teams that do things in real time, whether airplane cockpit crews or emergency room units or even symphony orchestras. And he would watch the way leadership worked. And what he discovered was so exactly parallel to what I found in these teams, which is that the leader's charisma and talent did not matter. It just wasn't a factor. They could have it, they could not have it. It didn't really make a difference. All that mattered, in fact, in terms of leadership inside a group is that every single important function of leadership gets done. That's it. You know, anything that needs to be done in order to help the team from a leadership perspective, as long as someone does it, it doesn't even have to be the leader. It could be somebody else. And on these great teams, what you saw was that these captains had established themselves as the person who would do anything. If there's a burning building that no one else wants to go into, they're going to go into it. And once that's established, and basically everyone on the team, whether a superstar or a bench player, understands that they're free to do their jobs and focus on what they need to do. 
And if they want to contribute to leadership, they can. They can do it the ways they want to. They can do the things that they're good at, whether it's mentorship or, you know, being a spark plug or being a sheriff or doing something else to help the team as a group. And you start to see this happening, this beautiful symphony that starts where everyone does what they're good at and everyone pitches in and every single function of leadership gets taken care of. And a great leader will never feel territorial, will never feel unhappy that someone is doing a leadership function because frankly it's a hard job being a great leader you know and sustaining excellence is incredibly taxing and difficult and anyone who's doing it the right way will be so happy to have help and assistance from others well and this book will help others and assist them too we've been talking to sam walker the founding editor of the wall street journal sports section and author of the captain class the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams Pick it up on Amazon. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. And Sam, thanks so much for doing this. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter, Five Best Stories Each Week. They come in audio form and in print form. And again, all you have to do is give us your email address. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. The Captain Class, Sam Walker's latest. This is Our American Stories.